0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Uh, Friends, let's pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you've said that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any sword, that it penetrates to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. You've made it able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So please enable me to speak your word faithfully today. Please cause it to do what you have promised it will. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Well, friends, uh, as you know, many Australians love sport. They love sport of almost any and every kind. But many of them, including myself, love that strange game, cricket. Well, today I want to introduce you to one famous cricket player. His name was C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was born in 1860 into a wealthy family who'd made their fortune in India, as you could do in those days. One day his father invited a visiting preacher to their home. And CT was going out to play cricket and the preacher asked him straight out, are you a Christian? Apparently CT's answer was not convincing. And so the preacher pressed him some more. And then he explained the Gospel to him. And CT was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he described what he did in response with these words. I got down on my knees and I did say thank you to God. And then right there and then, joy and peace came into my heart, my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again. And the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became alive. Now, C.T.'s two brothers were converted the very same day, family conversion, as it were, and three of them went on to Cambridge University uh, and where they achieved a remarkable record in cricket. They each captained the university cricket team where they achieved a remarkable... Where, where, where they, for successive seasons from 1882 to 1884 and did very well. However, the exceptional skill of CT gained him a place in the England team and the following winter... C.T. and his brothers were part of the cricket team that toured Australia. However, CT State is famous for something much more important, let me tell you, than cricket. You see, he and six other Cambridge men offered themselves to Hudson Taylor for missionary service in China. And like Hudson Taylor, they worked hard at identifying with the people and nationals and wearing Chinese clothes and eating with them and living like locals. At 25 years of age in China, C.T. was contacted then uh, in China and told that his father's will had left to him a very large sum of money, a great inheritance. Um, and C.T. prayed and he searched the scriptures and he decided that he would give his entire fortune to Christ. And then shortly after that, he married a young Irish woman, missionary, named Priscilla. And then after 10 years in China, they were forced by ill health to return to England. And then they turned their inherited property over to the China Inland Mission. Later, C.T. went on to to India, where he became the pastor of a church. Then, if that wasn't all enough, he offered to go to Africa as well. Um, However, doctors, committees, supporters expressed reticence at his decision, and so penniless, And without financial backers, C.T. left for 20 years of pioneering ministry in the heart of Africa. C.T. Studd was a remarkable man. And today, as we look at the story of Ruth together, I want you to ask, what makes such people tick? What is it that drives them to, to devotion like that? So, store away the question, what makes such people tick? And we'll return to it at the end of this talk. However, for the moment, let's turn to Ruth chapter 3. Have your Bibles open so that you can follow with me. Let's remind ourselves where we've come from. Ruth 1 tells us that we're in the time of the judges. Uh, we hear that Naomi's life has been one of tragedy and sadness. Um, however, she has, uh, although she's lost her husband and two sons, she's gained a daughter-in-law worth her weight in gold. Ruth is that daughter-in-law. Then in chapter 2, we're introduced to a wealthy landowner whose name is Boaz. And Ruth takes the initiative and goes to his field to glean grain. Glean grain means uh, at the sides of the field, there were things that were left over and you could pick them up. As it turns out, he, um, uh, she has heard, sorry, the farmer there has heard of Ruth's remarkable kindness or if I could use that word we've been using so far, kesed to Naomi, her overwhelming kindness to Naomi. And he is overwhelmingly kind and generous to her. In fact, he shows God's kesed to her. So that brings us to chapter 3, our chapter for today. It's important background that I've just given to you, so stick with it. Um, Let's take a quick run through the story together. Um, We'll look more closely at some of the details, but I I just want to summarise what we found. Remember back to chapter 2. There we found that Ruth took the initiative. She went out to glean for barley and she did very well. But look at verse chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. This time, Naomi takes the initiative. She seeks some longer-term security for Ruth. Look at verse 1. She says to her, my daughter, um, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Then in verse 2 she arranges a plan whereby Ruth will visit Boaz in the, on the threshing floor in the night. Now be aware that the threshing floor was a time for good eating and good drinking among the workers. Verse three, Verse 7 tells us that Boaz does eat and drink. We're told that his heart is merry. In other words, he's in good spirits and a happy mood then at the end of the same verse, we hear that Ruth quietly sneaks into where he has retired for the night. Without him waking, she uncovers his feet and lies down, just as her mother-in-law had instructed her to do back in verse 4. Then in verse 8, we are told that Boaz wakes up with a start in the middle of the night and he sees this woman at his feet. She demand, he demands that she identify herself. And for the first time in the book, someone identifies themselves by name. Ruth gives a clear and decisive answer. Verse 9, see it there. I am Ruth, your servant. He then boldly pr- proposes marriage. If yes, you do. <laughs> now, the NIV version of the Bible says that Ruth asked Boaz to spread his garment over her. However, the Christian Standard Version that we're looking at preserves a literal translation where Ruth says, I am Ruth your servant, take me under your wing for you are a family redeemer. In other words, she used the very same language of wings as Boaz had used in the previous chapter. There he said to Ruth, do you remember what he said? May the Lord reward you for what you've done. And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. But Ruth, whoops, Ruth adds something. She mentions that Boaz is her redeemer. In other words, he is effectively her next of kin. Then in verses 10 to 12, Boaz responds, and he's very honest with Ruth. He acknowledges, yes, I may be your redeemer, However, there is one nearer than me. In other words, there is one who has priority over me in relation to you. In verse 13, he urges her to stay the night and promises that he will do what he can for her in the morning. And in the morning, she wakes up before anyone else uh, can recognise her. Um, And in verse 14, Boaz notes that no one must know that a woman had come to the threshing floor. In verse 15... He gives her a substantial amount of barley and sends her home. In verses 16 and 17, he gives her a substantial amount of, sorry, we've done that, of barley, sends her home. 16 to 17, she reports back to Naomi and they talk about what they will do here. In verse 18, Naomi suggests that together they wait and see how things sort themselves out. Naomi's convinced it'll be sorted within the day. See you with me? Now, the thing that I need to say about this passage is it is littered with ambiguities. Littered with ambiguities. And the ambiguities are there in English and they're there in the original Hebrew. Let me give you some examples. In fact, I think the term ambiguities is a little bit tame. Perhaps I should say the passage is full of phrases that have double meanings. Let me point them out to you. First of all, there is what Naomi tells Ruth to do in verse 3. She is to wash, put on some perfume, dress herself in non-working clothes. One way to read this is she's, get, she's got to get ready to seduce him. However, that's not the only way to read the text. After all, David does exactly the same actions after he gets up after learning the, of the loss of his firstborn son to Bathsheba. That's got nothing to do with sexuality. So he can use it in that way. What, but then a more literal translation has talk of uncovering legs and wings later on in the chapter. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, do you know what? The same language is used in relation to intercourse. What's more, the term legs is linked to the word that is often used as a standard euphemism for genitals. The Hebrew term to lie down is like the English term to sleep. That is, it can have sexual or non-sexual overtones, particularly when you add the preposition with and it becomes to lie down or sleep with. Then in Hebrew, there's a high proportion of occurrences of the word to know. And in Hebrew, to know can do the same double duty as it often does in English, for knowing someone not just cognitively, but also sexually. So back in Genesis 4 we're told that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. Finally in verses 4, 7 and 14 we're told that Ruth is to go, come or go into certain circumstances, certain places. Well, those words in Hebrew can be used to refer to someone coming to another person sexually as it were. So I think this author has been very plain with us and he's shown us that there are... What, well, what do you think? Why is he putting these ambiguities here? What's he doing? He knows who his readers are. What is he doing here? Why is he, what's he trying to achieve by doing this? Well, in answer to those questions, we need to work out what this passage is about. Very important. So stick with me. This is a hard passage, but you need to stick with me. As is often the case in storytelling... One of the ways of working this out is to see if the author has left any clues. And one of the key places to look for clues is the beginning and the end of a story. In Hebrew poetry, that's very uh, Hebrew storytelling, that's very important. So let's take a look at this story. I want you to look at verse 1. See it there? Look at what Naomi says to Ruth. She says, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Naomi is seeking to find a resting place, some security for this young woman. Stranger, Moabites. That's the goal of what is going on here. With that in mind, I want to tell you that this is not the first time the word or idea has occurred within the book. Flip back in your Bibles to chapter 1. Look at verses 8 and 9. Here is what Naomi wishes for her daughters-in-law. In In verse 8, she wishes that the Lord will deal kindly with them or show, and you guessed it, here is our Hebrew word that I've been teaching you, show kesed to them. Do you remember kesed? God's overwhelming kindness toward his people. We've already seen the Lord do this, haven't we? In Boaz, he has shown amazing kindness and generosity. But then in verse 9, he wishes that they will find rest in the home of another husband. Well, that's what Naomi is about in this chapter. She is about finding a home or security for Ruth in the house of a husband who's an Israelite, thereby making her children an Israelite and her an Israelite as well. What she is doing is selfless. She has Ruth's well being in mind. She wants to show extraordinary love to her. With that in mind, look at how the chapter ends in verse 18. Naomi notes that Boaz will not find rest until the matter is settled, sorted out. And the Hebrew is different from verse 1, but it shows that Naomi's goals are on their way to being achieved. Naomi wants rest and security for her daughter-in-law. And Boaz will not rest until he exhausts all the possibilities of finding it. So, there's what I think is going on in the passage. It's about Naomi, seeking rest and security for this landless, isolated, Moabite woman amongst the people of God. Now, that in mind, let's return to the ambiguities I've mentioned. You see, I think that the author is deliberately including all the ambiguities and double meanings. I think he uses them to show the risks these women were taking. It was very risky business. He's telling them that what Naomi is about is not without very significant risks. After all, think of what might have happened. You've got imaginations. Think of what might have happened. Ruth might have been discovered by Israelites, all doled up smelling like a rose, heading off to the threshing floor. And is any Israelite would have immediately recognised she is doing exactly what her ancestor had done with Lot. Back in the book of Genesis, taking advantage of a drunk man. Or she was doing what Moabite women had done in the book of Numbers, leading the people of God astray. But that's not all. What if Boaz had misread it? Think of that. What if he had taken her simply for a woman out to take advantage of him and his position? Or what if he'd misread her intentions and taken advantage of her? What if she had become pregnant by her as a result of his lack of integrity? Any hope of finding security and a resting place amongst the people of God will be shattered beyond rescue. Friends, I'm putting it starkly for you to make you see what I think the original hearers would have felt. Can you hear what I'm saying? These women, with all their plans, are at great risk this day. They were bold, they were adventurous, they took great risks this night. But do you know what? God's sovereign love emerged. And those risks paid off. Their bold riskiness resulted in a marriage. It resulted in the birth of Obed. It resulted in the birth of Jesse. It resulted in the birth of David. And that finally resulted in the birth of Jesus the Christ. The Messiah. But there's more to say before we finish tonight. The first has to do with what actually happened on the threshing floor. Please hear what I'm saying. It's very important here. The author... Did use ambiguities deliberately, in my view. I think any Hebrew pe- person reading this text would have understood that. He did use them in order to show the risks that these women were taking. However, I do not think that he wanted us to think that anything wrong happened on the threshing floor that night. Let me tell you why this is. I want you to look at verse 13. Look at what Boaz says to Ruth. He tells her, stay here for the night. That means to spend the night, to stay overnight. It's not a term that's used with double meanings anywhere in the Old Testament. It never is used with sexual connotations. It's the very same term used by Ruth in chapter 1 verse 16 where she says to Naomi, where will you stay, wherever you stay, I will stay. Now, this is the author's signal that we have a godly man here and that he, like her, is not interested in a night sex on the threshing floor. He's after acting in a godly and right fashion. He wants what Naomi wants. He wants this godly woman to have a permanent place among the people of God. The second footnote has to do with that Hebrew word we've been, I've been showing to you. In the past week or two. Remember that word? Kesed. Please remember it. Don't forget it. It's a great one. It's my favourite Hebrew word. Kesed. And that word is used to describe God's character and nature. It means His surprising, overflowing, relational love. Well, it appears in this passage. Did you spot it? Look at verse 10. I'll read it to you using the special Hebrew word we've learnt over the last few weeks. Then he said, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kesed to me now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Here's Ruth again a woman who's been showing surprising and overwhelming kindness to Naomi, she's ventured out on this rather risky venture, endeavour, at Naomi's insistence. She staked much on it, and he knows it. But there's one more thing to notice here. I want you to look at verse 17. Ruth returns home with an abundance of barley, and she reports what Boaz had said, and she says he had said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And so when Naomi returned from Moab in chapter 1, she used the very same words she spoke of having returned empty. But now, can you see what's happening? In selfless generosity toward her daughter-in-law, she has found fullness herself. It's come back to her. And that fullness will continue. In chapter 4, do you know what we'll see? It's beautiful. We will see her nursing the child of this union. Born properly, born in wedlock. We will see her nursing the child of this union she orchestrated. And the women of the village will say to Naomi the peasant woman, and no the pleasant woman and no longer bitter woman. Naomi has a son. Naomi has a son. So there are the details of the text for us. It's a magnificent story when you begin to fathom the depths of it, isn't it? It's just incredible. But today I want to stress one thing from it for us. You see, in these past two talks, we've been watching that, we've been watching men and women practising kesed, haven't we? They've been practising kesed in one way or another or talking about it And as Boaz has reminded us in this chapter, Ruth has practised it toward Naomi. As we saw earlier, Boaz himself has practised it toward Naomi and Ruth. And as we've seen in this chapter, Boaz notes that Ruth has now practised it toward Boaz. And as we've we've seen in this chapter, Boaz notes that Ruth... Yeah, sorry, I've already said that. In many ways, it's possible to see, I think, the centre of this whole book as being about the practice of kesed, God's surprising, overwhelming generosity, but displayed by humans to humans. The actions of these people are being told to us in this book are like the actions of those who seek to be like God. They seek to show overwhelming love and kindness. But in this chapter, we've seen something special about kesed. You see, showing cassette is not without risk. It's surprising, unexpected. It's not without risk. But if you know God and love God, you'll do it. Doing cassette is the right response to what you know about God when you know the real God. In the New Testament language, you search. Search your brains. Think what are the equivalent words in the New Testament? grace and love, grace and love. With that in mind, I want to return to C.T. Studd that I spoke about at the beginning. And our initial question, do you remember the question I put to you right back at the beginning? We saw C.T. Studd's amazing life. We saw him desert a life of wealth for the sake of bringing people to know and love Jesus. Jesus. And we saw him disdain a life of comfort with his family in order that the gospel come to the Sudan in Africa. Sisters and brothers in Christ, what is it that drives such people to such devotion? What is it that motivates them to do these seeming, what the world might think to be seemingly crazy things? Well, you know what C.T. Studd tells us? You see, do you know what his personal motto for life was? It was this, if Jesus is God and died for me then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. CT Studd knew God He knew that God had shown overwhelming love and kindness to him, and he knew that such love deserves a response. It demanded a show of such overwhelming love and kindness, and he gave his life to do it. It required risk taking and stepping outside the ordinary. It wasn't just benevolence. No. Or writing cheques. No. It's about giving. And about giving yourself sacrificially, surprisingly, overwhelmingly and freely. And people like C.T. Studd have been responsible for the gospel spreading throughout the world. Friends, my observation is that such sacrifice, such self sacrifice is often missing in the contemporary world. Such risk taking for the cause of the gospel is sometimes missing. And my suspicion is that it is because we've forgotten God's great grace for us. It's just so ordinary. We've left our first love, in other words. So today I want to urge you to be fueled yet again by God's Kesed and its demonstration in the lives of these people. So let me urge all of us to be driven from our slumber by God's great and overwhelming love in Jesus Christ. I also want you to be shocked out of any comfortable situations you are in. Friends, our world needs gospel people. It needs people captured by the gospel. It needs people captured by God's grace in Jesus Christ. It needs people captured by the love of our Lord Jesus the Christ. And it needs them to give themselves sacrificially to that gospel and its proclamation and its living. So today, while you sit here, do you know Jesus? Do you live for Jesus? Are you overcome by God's love displayed in Jesus? Are you compelled by God's love? then let this love compel you to respond. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 15. He says this, For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what is it that compels you in life? Is it the latest bit of technology? The almighty dollar? The desire for a comfortable life and someone to enjoy it with? A house maybe, a car, a relationship, a job, a good career or is it the love of Christ? For if you know what it costs Christ to become human, if you know what it costs Christ, what costs... Christ paid for your sin, if you know what cost the Father allowed for him to take on, to do it, then I want to urge you today to let that love, that kesed, to drive you on, to compel you. Let it drive you to take risks, even if they might be misunderstood by others. Let it cause you to put to death your small desires and ambitions and allow it to drive you to no longer live for yourself, but for him who died for you and was raised for you. Friends, in the language of Paul the Apostle, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies, your souls, with every part of your being. Let Christ's love compel you. Let Christ's love compel us. Let's pray. Father, the love of Christ compels us. We love seeing it here, but we love seeing it in what he did. We love it that one died for all and therefore all died and that as a result we have been given a right relationship with you. But Father, we remember that he died so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. Please, Father, help us to live for the one who died for us and who was raised. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.